Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Um, these are our panelists. I'm Matt Carnes, Jen Drake, David Feuerstein, Rob Seacrest, and Emily Paxia. Um, I thought for those of you who are not familiar uh, with the cannabis industry, just to give you a quick backdrop, uh, for all intent and purposes, uh, the industry pretty much was established in 2014 when Colorado introduced its first recreational use market. Back then, that was about eight years ago, sales were about $3.8 billion. Fast forward to today, we're now, we have 18 rec states, uh, adult use, and 36 medical. The industry has progressed quite a bit over the past eight years. There's been ebbs and flows. Uh, last year, 2020, uh, we estimate the sales were, retail sales were about 19 billion. Uh, this year, uh, 23 billion, 28 billion by 2022. And really, the thing that I focus on is where we're going to be at the end at maturity. Um, and I think that's, we're looking at an 80 to $100 billion market. Um, if you compare that to tobacco, which is $120 billion, beer, $110, spirits, and, and uh, wine, about $150 billion combined. So there's a tremendous opportunity, um, but the industry remains illegal under federal law, which is a problem. So, and a good thing in a way. So what I thought I'd do is kick it off to you, David, our lawyer, our expert legal <laughs> person here. And uh, why don't you walk us through where we are at a federal, le at a federal level, the policy changes that have been introduced. Sure. Well, th thanks, Matt. Um, you know, as I think if I'm sitting in your seat and I put myself in your seat, uh, the first thing I'd want to know when investing is whether I'm investing in something that's actually legal. Um, as you, Matt Brench referenced, you know, cannabis is still illegal at the federal level. Uh, but for those who are following cannabis in any respects, I'm sure you're aware that uh, Schumer, Senator Schumer and Booker recently released legislation uh, with respect to how you would federally legalize cannabis, meaning that you would not only take it off the scheduling list, you would allow for banking, listing, you would allow for interstate commerce, uh, there's also many social reforms in that, social equity, uh, criminal uh, decriminalization, and sort of criminal reform. So that is, that is now on the table uh, in Washington, D.C. Many uh, industry participants have commented on it and provided insight as to what they think about uh, that legislation. And what, what I would expect uh, in the future is sort of some sort of incremental change. Uh, I think it's hard to envision a widespread federal legalization with a snap of a fingers, uh, but I do think that within time, you'll see sort of small steps towards federally, federally legalized industry. Great, and, and Jen, you know, in light of the, the challenges, the legal challenges, how is AIR able to establish such a compelling national brand in light of the federal illegality? Sure. Um, well, for people in the audience maybe um, who aren't as familiar with cannabis, AIR is ooh, it's a publicly traded equity. So we started our life as a SPAC, uh, raised about $100 million in 2017, and are now a $2.5 billion publicly traded company. Uh, so we give the kind of industry, uh, uh, the industry viewpoint on, on this panel. Um, and just a little bit by way of background, I used to be in your shoes. I think went to my first SALT in maybe 2009 um, in the private credit world. Um, and it's such a compelling opportunity in cannabis that I actually, several years ago, voted with my feet and moved into uh, doing the first cannabis SPAC. Um, uh, 
But if I'm in your shoes, if I think about to, you know, back to when I was looking at an alternative investments, what's super compelling about cannabis is that it is incredibly fragmented market. And so for the few businesses like ours that are at the top of the food chain in terms of multi-state operators who are able to have a footprint across many of those legal states that David mentioned, you can both have a very compelling cash flow opportunity today in your operating business because you are vertically integrated. You grow it, you manufacture it, you produce it, you sell it at wholesale, you sell it through retail stores, which in many cases are in a limited license environment. So for instance, in Nevada, our most productive stores do $35 million per year in revenue, which is over $10,000 per square foot. So it's a really compelling industry structure um, for today. And for tomorrow, as Matt mentioned, the future is branding. The future is when cannabis becomes a proper consumer product at $100 billion plus or minus in terms of annualized revenue, putting it up there with all of the other major consumer products in the sector. And the key to being that great consumer product company when the industry matures is first and foremost, having a great product. And what does that mean for cannabis? Well, I think people, people don't realize how hard it is to grow great cannabis. Um, and I certainly didn't know this three years ago. Um, you certainly wouldn't want me growing your weed. What you want is incredibly experienced cultivators um, who've been in the industry for a long time growing a great product because half of what gets sold is flour is you know, the flower that either goes in your pre-roll or gets ground up and goes in your, um, your joint. I never thought I would be talking about this. Um, but half of our product is flower, and so it is all about the plant. It is all about growing a great product, and that is why, for us, the way to build a great brand is to do all the normal things a consumer product company would do, excellent customer experience, excellent approach to branding. But first and foremost, it all starts with the quality of what goes in the box. It all starts with the quality of the plant. And any operator, I'm the, you know, um, I'm the operator um, kind of on the panel today, but any operator will tell you the same thing. That is the key, and that is why for us, the key is to be the largest scale producer of high quality flour in the US. One of the things that, just to Jen's point, was when we started five or six years ago in the business, you used to have people say, we had the greatest cultivator, and he's been doing it for 20 years, which sort of made you scratch your head for a minute, because yeah. 20 years ago, there was no legal industry at all. But now, as you see the industry evolving, you have true you know, horticulturists, PhDs, uh, real scientists who are, who are growing cannabis in real controlled environments with the greatest technology. So the, in, our, just in our experience, just being in the space, it's completely evolved. It's, it's definitely not like growing tomatoes, that is for sure. No. <laughs> no. Um, so, so Rob, from your perspective, you run a fund, um, a, um, it's a REIT fund, Plurs. Um, you know, from your perspective, what do you think needs to happen before federal legalization actually you know, occurs? What is the industry missing, aside from it actually being legal? 
And just to give you a little color on us, we're the largest privately held private mortgage REIT. It is lending specifically to the owners of cannabis properties with, can uh, with, with cannabis use tenants, I should say. And we've put out nearly a quarter of a billion dollars in this sector. Um, for us, the most consequential legislation that that's has already happened in 2014, which is the Roebucker-Blumenauer Amendment at the time, which defunded the Department of Justice from any prosecution of a cannabis-related business. So that was a clear path for us to lend to the owners of commercial real estate and allow for cannabis use tenants. It's very important that that's there, and that's the, that's the, the bedrock that I think that most of the people are here. Um, in regards to what I think needs to happen uh, legislatively or, or where things are going to go, um, I'm less optimistic as my peers that legislation reform is going to deconflict state policy from federal policy in the near term. I just don't see the uh, progressive states, California and New York and, and uh, liberal states, giving an advantage to the uh, Republican states that are coming in late to the game to, uh, to, to completely legalize it. And on top of that, there's a patchwork of different laws and, and, and tax structures that are already in place. So I just never see the Interstate Commerce Clause coming into play. I could be wrong. Um, I think the bill's too broad. I think that if they just focus on removing 280E from the IRS code, it's a simple one-shot kill. And if they move, allow credit cards to be run on the federal system, we've killed two major issues out there with very targeted measures. But that's not how Congress works. We know many of these representatives. Dan Rohrbacher's our friend and our local congressman, and we are implementing funding him at the time. Um, I just don't see uh, a broad bill passing with the 60 votes that are necessary to get past the bill, Lester, and unless they include it in the infrastructure bill. I just think the opportunity is passed, and I think the, the Democrats will lose this, the House in this midterm. That said, I don't think you have to have federal legalization in order for the investing opportunity to be compelling. And I know Emily yeah. does a lot in that set in, in, of investing in the space. So. I mean, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, I mean, hi, everyone. I'm <laughs> founder of Poseidon. Poseidon has three funds dedicated to investing in the cannabis industry. We opened our first fund right when Colorado opened our doors to their legal adult use market in January of 2014. So, and we've invested across the entire capital spectrum. So we've really, and really in the United States, Canada, Latin America, and Western Europe. So we've really explored and, and engaged in, across the entire supply chain and have un understood the levers you can pull to really drive returns in this really early emerging market. But Jen's point is, is spot on, and I, I totally agree. For us, actually, the ability to deploy capital before federal legalization, this is the time to be putting money into this industry. Because by the time the lawmakers move to get something legalized on the federal level, I think the alpha will be out of this space. And you'll just be kind of investing where it's very easily accessible. Our whole thing is to kind of exploit the delta between perceived an actual risk when it comes to investing in this market. And the way we do that is by being boots on the ground. We spend all our time on the road in these facilities, understanding the people involved, understanding the regulations involved, because the regulations are also kind of a gas pedal and a brake pedal. So, you know, we have things where we want to change 280E, which is our egregious federal tax code around cannabis where you cannot write off ordinary business expenses. So you have these like tremendous effective tax rates, and Jen can speak to that in her business. 
What we also have in the US is a lack of access to the capital markets. We are currently listed on the OTC, we, we trade in Canada, but what that does is it creates a lot of challenges around what actually happens around these public names. And for us, we've seen a couple of cycles. I don't know if anyone here is familiar with the Gartner hype cycle around tech, but we've been observing a very similar pattern in cannabis. The one big difference is that institutional capital has largely been sidestepping this industry. Um, so, you know, it's time for smaller firms like ours to be able to get into the mix, invest along the, along the way, and then when we see that institutional capital opening up, when we see the capital markets opening up, and people can participate at a broader base into this industry, that's when we're really going to see some serious liftoff. And you can see how that's been mirrored in Canada, where they do have a federal legal program, and they've been able to access the capital markets. It's so, an interesting conundrum is that we have tremendous operators in the United States. The fundamentals of these businesses are very strong. You can't see a consumer sector that's growing at the rate it's growing at over 30% year over year with, um, with EBITDA margins like we're seeing in, in cannabis. It's really unparalleled almost. And so it's, it's just a very exciting time to be in it. But then you see the Canadian operators who don't have those same strong fundamentals, but they have access to our NASDAQ and to our New York Stock Exchange, and so they have a totally different experience in, ter in terms of how their public companies perform. So I, I don't know, you know, one of the things we said when we launched Poseidon is we would have to get very comfortable often being uncomfortable, and so that's been part of our whole thing, and we just lean in on our work to really understand how to, how to engage in this sector. What, what I think is really compelling about the story in the U.S. is the ability um, and, the, and the proven track record of many of the MSOs, um, the ability to generate free cash flow and cash flow from operations in light of federal prohibition because there are added costs of prohibition. There's this 60 to 70 percent um, effective tax rate, um, there's highly, a higher cost of capital. There's added compliance yeah. costs. I mean, the list goes on. And so in my view, when federal legalization occurs or when there's any meaningful change to state law, um, the cash flow profile will accelerate dramatically. And that's when, you know, you want to be in now, I would say. Um, but um, Jen, you know, just getting back to like the capital markets, like for AIR, um, you guys have made a series of acquisitions. I mean, that's sort of the play now in the sector. There's a lot of acquisitions and consolidation and so forth. And AIR has done, um, you know, some of their transactions, cash, stock, a combination thereof. Um, valuations have come down as we talked about. And so, you know, how, how do you think about deploying the capital that you have? You're also doing a share buyback. Well, one of the things that's amazing about this business is even it, you know, we've talked a little bit about the barriers and the extra costs about running this business and the extra taxes, et cetera. But even with all of those headwinds, you're still able to have an incredibly robust margin structure and incredibly robust cash flow generation, um, which means you have really great kind of credit metrics and the ability to, to, when you deploy capital, you can do it extremely, extremely profitably, for instance, and this is gonna sound crazy to the people in this room, when we engage in capital projects, which can have you know, multiple returns uh, in, in terms of return on invested capital, we get our capital back within like 18 months. Mm -hmm. So people are always very worried, oh, what is, are, is it worthwhile putting $30 million into this cultivation facility in Massachusetts? What's gonna happen with federal legalization? Well, every dollar I get after a year and a half 
is gravy because I paid back my $30 million investment. There's no other industry where your return on capital is that fast. And it's because the margin structure of this business is so robust and because the leverage you can get from capital projects is so material. So when we invest in capital projects or in M&A, I mean, our business currently trades at about, and this sounds like a crazy number, like five, six times 2022 expected EBITDA for a business growing 100% year over year in terms of revenue with a 30% EBITDA structure. That's crazy. Um, but it's because of these structural hurdles to investment. And when we buy other people, we're buying at accretive EBITDA multiples. So M&A is sub six times. Capital, we invest in capital projects, returns within one and a half years. Um, it's an incredible, incredible proposition to grow your company right now, which is why we're so acquisitive and why we wanna expand our business as much as possible, exactly as Emily said, before it's federally legal. Because when it is federally legal, there will be a rush of capital in, both from you know, the people who are on the sidelines now, whether it's the Canadian, they're called licensed producers, LPs, the Tilray and Kronos and Aurora and Canopies of the world, or even the big you know, tobacco and, and alcohol companies who have been desperate to get into the cannabis business for donkey's years, but are still, still won't do it until there's more kind of federal, you know, more clarity on federal legalization. When those people come into the business, cost of capital is gonna go down, um, return on capital is gonna go down. So we wanna get as much as possible at these cheap levels uh, before federal legalization. And David, you know, speaking of, you know, on the topic of M&A, you know, one of the things that I really scratched my head on during the Trump administration was Attorney General Barr. There was a lot of M&A um, activity going on and the Department of Justice was conducting antitrust reviews so to me, that didn't make a lot of sense to have a, a, a federal investigation or deploy those resources into an activity that's fairly illegal. A lot of money was spent, a lot of time was spent. Unfortunately for you guys, we're on the sidelines and did. You and a lot, of, deal with all that. a lot of delay, right? Oh, no, so, deal's broken. We bought them. Yeah, exactly. Was so it was, you know, <laughs> well, that's part of being a good operator is knowing, you know, yeah. when to, when to no, there, there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of, um, I guess, you know, asymmetries, right? So federal government that's using uh, federal funds to conduct investigations into antitrust issues in a state-run state businesses doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And, and, you know, major transactions were sort of kept on the sideline for many, many months waiting for the antitrust review to sort of pass by. Um, it, it's, it, is, um, it is sort of inexplicable, but I think that's the smaller, one of the smaller inexplicable things of the past administration. So um, in any event, I do think the, you know, I, I don't disagree that, that federal legalization is, is some time off. Um, but as I said, it, there, you know, there's nothing in this country that I'm aware of right now that has more sort of consensus no. than legalization of cannabis, believe it or not. Uh, I believe at the last election, it was over 60% of uh, eligible voters agreed that uh, cannabis should be legalized for adult use. Um, I, 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 I assure you that any of our politicians would, would fall over themselves for that kind of approval. So um, it just, there are things that don't make sense and are inexplicable in our government, but certainly you would expect that given the population sentiment, there will be movement eventually towards federal legalization. 
And I, I think there's going to be a smoother ride to the finish. I mean, there was a lot of bumps. It was like being a bump, bumpy old jalopy or something, you know, under the old administration. And now it's, you know, sort of just smooth. So um, we don't know when the timing is. But in the meantime, you know, there, is, there are restrictions around capital, access to capital. That's a challenge. Um, and there's, you know, been a variety of different um, um, solutions to that, one of which are the REITs, which has been very um, important in the sector over the last few years. Uh, so, Rob, can you talk about, you know, what the advantages are to the operator and, you know, sort of what the advantages are uh, to the investor? Sure. So, we're a mortgage REIT, which is different than a traditional REIT. We don't own properties. We just get the tax advantage of being a REIT, which we pass along to our investors, which is a 20% tax savings on the ordinary income that we generate. In addition to that, the other super significant advantage is, is that there's, uh, the, the state tax is only paid in the state that you're domiciled. So our largest in, portion of our investor base is in non-state, no-tax states such as Texas and Florida and other various states like that. But in regards to the capital markets and things out there, um, I will share kind of off the record that the institutional investors are ready and willing and will be making an announcement next week that the largest investment banks and community banks, insurance companies, pension funds are active and ready to come in. So there is a path through. We have a different structure since we're non-plant touching as opposed to some of my peers here. So we're specifically only lend to the owners of the property and allow for cannabis use. So we have a, a little bit of delineation there. But um, in, in that quest for investors since you know, 2016, almost five and a half years we've been dedicated to this space, we've had to go through every single approach that there is. And, there was no short path, easy path. There was no broker dealer. It was myself and my team raising that every single one of those dollars ourselves. So we started with retail investors, and now we're finally to the institutional investors. Great. Um, what, so interstate commerce, we talked briefly about that. It's a very important issue now. A lot of people are talking about it. Because for those that aren't aware, um, each state ha has to operate in a closed economy within cannabis, because it's state by state. It's illegal federally. Mm -hmm. So um, the question becomes, you know, are you able to, you know, it's obviously a lot more efficient if you're cultivating in just one state or however many states rather than in every single state. Um, but the ability to cross state lines, um, that's weighing, you know, a lot on people's minds. Um, what, what is your take on that, Jen, on, you know, how important it is in the near term or, or medium term as you think about investing? So I think it's one of the, one of the many uncertainties in the space is when we finally get mainstreaming, when we finally get legalization, what is that going to look like? Is it going to look like full federal legalization? You know, you can cross state lines. And P.S., if you cross state lines, you can pretty much cross international lines. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that is, you know, a wrinkle that even if people decide, oh, I have no problem having all the cannabis in the, in the U.S. grown in California and then shipped around the country, does that mean they want cannabis coming up from Mexico and from Colombia and in from Canada? It's probably not exactly what uh, lawmakers want. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Um, and that's why I think a lot of people have a view that, at least in the interim, something called the States Act is most likely, is the most likely more mainstreaming approach to cannabis. And that basically says federal government's going to take their hands off like the Wobacher Amendment, but like forever, and the states can do whatever they want. But in that environment, it is unlikely that 
THC will be able to cross state lines, so we'll be in a similar situation that we are today. Um, there may, but who knows? There are also there. It's a lot of uncertainty. There is a lot of talk about well, maybe states can make interstate, you know, pacts, and Indiana and Ohio yeah. can make a decision to trade amongst themselves. It's a little bit of a of an uncharted territory if we were to do something like that. But it is less of a kind of big bang than just to allow interstate commerce. And if, if I could just add to that, Corey Garner is a friend of ours. He was a co-sponsor with Elizabeth Warren of the States Act. And at the time that he was a senator, he had the 60 votes necessary to, to get it through. So those votes are there. Um, yep. Mitch McConnell wouldn't bring it to the floor. They didn't want to, they were afraid because uh, Elizabeth Warren was a presidential candidate that the other presidential candidates would try to move the bill a little bit farther and farther, saying states act is not enough. We needed to criminalize. The next one say there needs to be reparations. And so they were afraid they'd lose the vote. So what that tells us is that there are enough Republicans. I believe there's 17 that have been identified that are willing to do it. But neither side's willing to give the other side the win. And political, po the political machinations that are happening behind the scenes have nothing to do with what the laws are. And so it's just such a broken system. And unless they get it through budget reconciliation, I just don't see it happening in the very near term. And I think the political capital right now is in decriminalization, not, not uh, legalization. And so that's where I think that they'll focus, and that could be national. I also think that implementation of regulation changes around cannabis takes years. So even if we got federal legalization, True. even if they were to open up interstate commerce, the implementation of a framework around that I, I mean, if it takes two years for California to turn on, I mean, we're in New York, we're watching, you know, what is going on here in the timelines there. On a federal level, I can't even imagine. And just even thinking through all of the ways that this starts and stops, like, if you look at after alcohol prohibition, we still have blue laws in states. We still have states that are not as open to importing from California, for example, as they are, or, or you have to pay you know, a fee or a tariff to do so. So there are, there are different challenges around this that I think we, so even if it did happen where they say, yes, we have federal legalization and there can be interstate commerce, I think there are many barriers to the full implementation of that. So I think we have years until we see this laying out. I mean, even the states, that are very opposed to having legal cannabis, I could see them saying you cannot pass through our state with, with legal cannabis to get from the west to the east coast. And I think Jen's point too about once you think about the global infrastructure of what a global cannabis market looks like, then you start to see Colombia has massive cultivation going on in greenhouses down there. And by the way, with EU GMP certification, and so if you can produce cannabis in Colombia at that level, at that certification, and be importing that into Europe for a medical distribution chain, I mean, things start to get very interesting when you think about the commoditization of the raw material, which is really a plant. Um, that's many years away, but it's just, once you start to go down that path, you really have to go the whole way down that path. One thing, there are um, some, companies now are establishing an exchange developing, or, or conceptually anyway, futures contracts around cannabis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but if you have a futures contract, if you trade on that in the same mechanism that any other futures mm -hmm. trades, you have to be able to uh, take delivery of the product. So with interstate commerce not being permissible, I don't know how that's gonna work out, but that's another discussion. But mm -hmm. anyway, David, what's your take on you know what's going on with Interstate commerce. Well, I mean, I think we've we've talked about it, but I, I, for for this room, I think the takeaway should be that that the the opportunity exists now 
um, you know, because of regulatory hurdles, because of the fragmentation, because of uh, limitation of states' licenses, there's opportunities uh, abound in, in terms of investing. I think Jen touched on Massachusetts. Massachusetts is a super attractive state in particular because there are limitations on canopy. No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how big you are, you can only grow so much cannabis in the state of Massachusetts, which means that there's an absolute you know, uh, supply and demand uh, in favor of, of demand right now. So prices are very high, which is why Jen's, Jen's company is able to get return on our investment in 18 months. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's the same across basically everywhere east of the Mississippi. You have the same, you know, limitation on canopy. So it's New York. It's, it, well, it will be New York, right. yeah. we know. Um, it's New Jersey. It's Massachusetts. It's Pennsylvania. Um, Illinois has a higher cap. But all of the eastern U.S. is implementing a similar kind of similar license structure mm -hmm. where there are these caps. And it makes, and that's why, when we were talking earlier about that incredibly robust margin structure, there are these there are these regulatory limitations that allow for that robust margin structure and keep it really really uh, pervasive for a long period of time. I mean, people have been asking me for over three years, when's Massachusetts going to be less good on a wholesale basis? I'm like a long time from now. Uh, and it's five years ahead of Pennsylvania and New Jersey. So the, it's a persistent opportunity that's structural. And if you can get in it, it's the hardest business I've ever seen. It's an incredibly challenged business, challenging business to really operate in. But if you can operate well, you have an incredible, incredible structural advantage. And I personally would like federal legalization to be as far away as possible because I want the biggest portfolio possible the biggest wholesale business, the best brands, and the biggest retail footprint ahead of that. And I, I just think one of, the, one of the countervailing points that you haven't heard yet about federal legalization is that you have state constituents who are going to be you know, super opposed to, to interstate commerce, mm -hmm. you know, save for maybe the state of California and the state of Arizona. Yeah. Every state on the East Coast is going to, you know, every governor, every, every delegate, every senator is going to say, we don't want you know, interstate mm -hmm. commerce because we've poured ton we have ten tons of tax revenue that's coming in mm -hmm. from our state operators. We want to keep cultivation facilities and, and dispensaries and jobs and tax money coming in. What are we going to do? The state of Colorado, it was a startling statistic about the amount of tax revenue they generated and how that goes to schools. Mm -hmm. So imagine if all of a sudden that, that revenue base is taken away because jobs are lost or tax dollars are not there anymore. So I think once they even get, you know, sort of again to Emily's point, once they get to the point of actually legalizing it from a legislative point, the regulation process and enacting regulations are going to abound and it's going to be very difficult to get consensus quickly. So I think you're going to find every governor coming to, the, to Washington, D.C. To, to lobby against interstate commerce. But again, good for the incumbents. Yeah. 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 Well, it's clear the smoke's out of the bomb at this point in terms of you know, federal legalization. It's going to happen. Um, but there are you know, still a lot of challenges around trading and capital markets and stuff. So you know, Emily, you're Poseidon. Um, you have some publics in your portfolio. Uh, you know, what are the challenges uh, that you are faced with in terms of you know, if you want to exit or, or trade? Or well, yeah, because the markets are, it's, there's low liquidity in these names, and they're very thinly traded. And so, when you're a firm that's really kind of one of the institutions trading in it, you can definitely impact the market. And for example, we saw 
um, was it Credit Suisse that said no more trading? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so um, we know there were a number of actual big funds that were in the space. No, they weren't in meaning like big for their funds, but for the space, it was hundreds of millions of dollars. And so there was some forced selling through the uh, second, like through April. And you could just see across the entire sector what that did to the sector in terms of the, the volume and also just the pricing. So that was really difficult. Um, there's, there's also just the challenges around you know, where you can hold the stock, who you have as your brokerage firms that are actually working in this space. You know, and then you have the Canadian and US piece to it. So even if you go public and you have public stock, the perception of liquidity that you're, you're, you're now free and you're trading is, is just not there. There's a lot of steps you have to take to navigate through it. And we're, we're generally long the names that we're in. We do some uh, shorting in our first fund, but it's very, very specific and very short shorting. But um, we're generally long the sector. We're long the, the names that we select for the portfolio. So we're okay with the, the buy and hold, and we're generally really just trying to be mindful of our entry points and timing the market right. But um, for us, it's not been as much about getting in and getting out. It's just continuing to build positions, especially as we've watched this market draw down since I think it was like February 20th was when we top ticked it the last time. Um, so that's, but it is, it's just not the same as, as being on the listed exchanges. And until we have some, from what we understand, it's not necessary to get the banking reform in place. It's just that the exchanges would like to see that before yeah. they potentially endeavor into the space for the plant touching companies, yeah. And if I could add to that, the, it's not just the custodian of the shares, it's the custodian of the securities that's being right. held. Um, so we've had those challenges as well uh, with some of the things we're working on. But something that most people don't know is that there's uh, 684 banks that are currently listed on FinCEN's website that are actively accepting cannabis depositors, uh, tier one banking. And so there's an enormous amount of banking already out there, state, state banks and credit unions. Um, we're in an FDIC insured bank and, and we're tracking all those banks and private lenders. And of those banks, there's dozens and dozens of them that are already lending direct. So it's much more robust than people realize and, and think. The challenges that we're talking about are challenges that are kind of um, ancillary challenges, but they have to be thought all the way through. And it's one of the challenges of this industry. You're like, okay, I've got my capital source, I've got my deal source, I've got my due diligence source, and you go to close, you realize the, the, the escrow company can't hold uh, anything to do with cannabis related whatsoever. And the title company won't deal with it. Yep. And the errors admission insurance won't deal with it. And all the way down the line, the property insurance. And so, you know, and, and you've got to disclose that. You've got to get it disclosed in writing because if you ever go to make a claim, they're going to deny that claim. Sure. And so yep. getting an insurance company, a major insurance company, or somebody to put that in writing is a major challenge. And so you have to know how to work those things and have those relationships. And so even once you get past the biggest challenges that you thought were in place, these little challenges, they don't, you don't have any leverage with these third parties. And so these are really become the bigger obstacles that we're all having to face here um, at, at different value points in the, in the, in the process. So there's, also just a, okay. there's also issues you know, from, uh, from the federal illegality is how do, you, how do you secure against your debt if you're issuing debt? And what do you do? There's no bankruptcy protection. A number of companies have once tried to file for bankruptcy. They've been kicked out of bankruptcy court. So what are you doing if you're going to uh, lend money? How are you going to be able to seize your collateral? How are you going to be able to ensure that there's no leakage of collateral? Yeah, I would say, I would say though, that you're well compensated for that. I mean, yeah. no, cannabis course. spreads are 
500 basis points over yeah, similar, uh, like comparable credit companies. I agree. I'm just and saying, hundreds from a legal of, and like billions of dollars have been raised in the cannabis credit market. So I mean, definitely yes, what you're saying is true. Although UCC, uh, but I will say that people find the potential returns sufficiently attractive that billions of dollars of cannabis ca cannabis credit. So raised. we're almost out of time. But one thing I want to touch on because the, the name of the panel is The Future of Cannabis. Sorry. Uh, so, <laughs> um, when I rolled up my sleeves nearly eight years ago, when I thought about the industry, I thought there are going to be three lanes. There's the rec market, mm -hmm. there's health and wellness, and then there's pharmaceutical. And the rec market, or the rec lane is widening now, because mm -hmm. we have more states. Um, there's more, well, same with the, um, the health and wellness as we have more CBD products and so forth. Uh, pharmaceuticals are, I think medical will be redefined and recalibrated as big yeah. pharma comes in and there's more research that's done. And that's a whole other panel and discussion about medical, true medical marijuana. Yeah. Um, but what are your, what are each of your thoughts on how the industry is going to look in say 10 years, 10 and 15 years? Start with you, Jen. Um, I think that you'll you'll find that a lot of people who have who use cannabis for quote recreational purposes are actually using it for wellness purposes. Um, so I think you'll see the there's a whole plant wellness movement across the country right now, and what you'll see is as recreational quote adult use sales become legal in more states, you will see people essentially almost using cannabis more like a nutraceutical. There are some people who will use it um, who will use it. Uh, you know, for its, you know, for its, we call it, we call it the intersection of wellness and wonder. You'll see some <laughs> people who are using it for its wonder properties, but a huge portion of the people who are using it, like my mom, uses it for arthritis relief because she has, you know, really bad arthritis. So she uses topicals. She, you know, has a bad back, and instead of taking opioids, she will use cannabis instead. So she she substitutes it for some of the more OTC type wellness products that she would otherwise use. I think you'll see that expand materially. I think you'll see people substituting alcohol for, uh, for cannabis. Um, I talked to someone last week, we, have a, we just bought a cannabis uh, sparkling seltzer um, that is basically like a LaCroix but cannabis infused. Um, and literally, I don't know this person from Adam, I met her for the first time over the phone. She told me she drives across the border to get our product, Levia, a hundred cans at a time, and then drives wow. back across the, to the New York, wow. across to New York. A hundred cans at a time. She she didn't literally. I had no idea. She was just like, oh yeah, great buy. Like I have two I have two Levias a night now instead of two glasses of wine, mm -hmm. and my husband does too. Um, so you'll see substitution. You'll see an expansion of OTC and nutraceutical wellness, and then I think you will see true pharmaceutical grade cannabis like GW Pharma's um, Abdialex, you'll see more and more of that come um, because you'll have more research. But I'm going to go. I, I would just add that I think, the, I, I think I agree with all of Jen's points, most of them at least. And then I, think, <laughs> I think the one point that I would add is that I, you, you're going to find that there's going to be uh, significant research in the, what they call the, the, the minor cannabinoids. And, oh. and they're going to find uh, uses for those minor cannabinoids in all sorts of things. Uh, the human system, you know, has a cannabinoid system already uh, long before cannabis has been talked about as a legal, uh, a legal drug. And I think that people are going to figure out ways to treat multiple diseases and, and symptoms 
uh, with cannabis. And so I look for the medical space to really explode in you know, 10 or 20 years. Well, I would agree with all the things that they're <laughs> saying, but from a debt perspective, we've already analyzed this space as being a $50 billion uh, market size for the real estate sector and only two and a half billion has been put out. So we see that uh, the, the rates and the terms will be more mature and stabilized and similar to other, other uh, types of debt markets out there. Um, and we've got to work through and make sure that we are dealing with that and addressing that. But um, we believe that this uh, specialty use lending market is similar to cold storage, data centers and labs, and it will always help perform other, uh, you know, other types of debt credit funds for real estate out there. So we're, we're excited about it. We think it's, it's here to stay. And, and like you said earlier, it's a, I think 50 billion is uh, 48 billion projected by 2025. So it's a massive, but that's from the consumer side. We're talking about the secured, the asset side. So we're a little bit different lane, but we have a different approach, but we're on the same general business as well. Emily, final word? Yeah, I think that I'm really interested in watching how Gen Z is really the first cannabis native generation where they're entering the workforce, their share of wallet is being dedicated to cannabis as opposed to, to alcohol. And there was just something released about for the first time ever, uh, alcohol use is down in college students, cannabis use is up. So I think where we're going next is that this is being integrated into people's lives differently. It doesn't have to be siloed or kind of off to the side. It can be a part of everyday life. And I think that's what is coming from that is the shifting from the form factors from just smoking it in a bowl or a bong to being able to drink it and, or being able to eat it and having these other more socially acceptable and socially normalized ways of consuming cannabis. So I think that that's just really interesting because right now the it's the Pareto principle where the 20% of the population that's they're spending 80% into our market and it's all the flower high potency products. But I think once we get to the outskirts of that where we're hitting into those other form factors and we're hitting more with women, we're hitting more with seniors, we're hitting more with the Gen Z that's really driving this, I think we're going to see a real spreading out of this market and actual depth to the growth of it. Not just from turning on new markets, but we'll see real depth in our consumer basis. So I'm really excited about where we're going next. Awesome. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, there's certainly a lot to talk about in this space. We really didn't hit on every topic, but um, thank you all for, for participating. Thanks. Thank